Open your Bibles with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. There it is. Uh, When I was about 14, my parents uh, did a very good thing for me, and they uh, compelled my brother and I to memorize the Sermon on the Mount. And so that was a long process of memorizing these three chapters. And uh, that's been many, many years ago. Uh, And over the years, at various times, the truths of this sermon have come back over and over and over again. Uh, That process, as well as years as a family, of reading five psalms and a chapter of Proverbs every day, uh, at least five days a week, were transformative in the way I understood and thought about the word and life. I say that because when I came back to the Sermon on the Mount, this will be the first time I've ever preached through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I don't even think I've preached through portions of it before. I, I certainly have no recollection of it if I have. Just being back in it, even again this week, was such a joy and a delight to my soul. And I had a very unique moment uh, Friday as I was wrapping up study and doing writing and Uh, had a living moment of the Sermon on the Mount while I was in the process of it. And I'm sitting out uh, at at my second office, the Starbucks on Broad River Road. Um, uh, It's actually not Broad River Road. What is that road? It's it's the new Starbucks they just built there, so uh, by the new Aldi. We're getting all the things out here in Irmo now. Uh, And and it is my second office, which I think some of you will get this. I still think it's better than the bathroom at Al's Diner that Fonzie had. So um, at least it's much more sanitary. So I'm sitting there and um, had a moment of just living example of the Sermon on the Mount um, when I ran across a person uh, in the Starbucks. And a particular passage from the Sermon on the Mount just filled my soul, frankly, with strength, with truth, and with hope. And in that moment, what would have otherwise been, frankly, a very dark and difficult moment became such a life-giving and strength-giving moment to see the power of Christ and the power of his spirit at work in us. I say that because the dominant structure and theme of the Sermon on the Mount uh, is really human flourishing. And so our big takeaway this week and and I would encourage you to think of this throughout the weeks that we will spend with the Sermon on the Mount, is this. Embracing the true message of Christ is the pathway to thrive in this life or to flourish in this life. This will simply be an introduction to these chapters, and, and it'll be a little bit of a weird schedule. I'll, we'll deal with the Beatitudes next week. Um, uh, we have a guest speaker the week after that, and then we have communion after that, and then we'll be back. So it will be some time that we're in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and if you're here this morning, you're like, oh, an introduction. I just want you to, my goal is for you to leave here cliffhanger moment, hang, hungry. Hungry and yearning to hear more because I want that to last for you. I want that to linger with you because God gives us this sermon and it's the lengthiest sermon we have of Jesus. It is at the very core of his message and his identity and is intended for you and I to know how can we thrive, how can we flourish in this life that we live. I was thinking about it from a child perspective 
uh, way back when little elementary school, right? So I don't know if this would be second or third grade. feels like by fourth grade we'd figure this out. But second or third grade, if you ask kids, what do you want to be or who do you want to be, lots of kids would say, I want to be the president. Not every kid, but lots of kids would say, the president. why do you want to be the president? And if you ask the little second or third grader, why do you want to be the president? It's not so that they can handle foreign policy, right? Or uh, handle defense spending or uh, create a better health care or social security plan. Why do you want to be little Johnny? Or if you'd ask little Steve, why do you want to be the president? So that we can have, never have homework again. Uh, so that we only have recess. So that we get dessert with every meal and we get to eat it first. Well, usually by the time you're third or fourth grade, you figured out the president doesn't have that power. And so you don't want to be president anymore. It, it, who cares? But you want, at that age, even at that young age, children want a position in power and authority so that they can design a life that they think is best for them. A life that I can thrive in. A life that I can truly delight in. Uh, if I'm the president, then I'll mandate that I'm the starting pitcher for this team, or I get to do this, or I get to do that. And I'm going to mandate forever. I'm going to make everybody happy if I was the president. Because that's exactly what presidents do, right? Um, and it's just childlike. We don't, we don't understand. But what's fascinating about that is as we grow and become adults, I think what we leave behind is the concept that the president can do that. What we embrace, though, is the concept that I can do it. And we spend, the vast majority of people, spend the rest of their lives on a journey chasing a life in which they feel like they can thrive and be happy. And they will typically go from one thing to the next. If I can have just the right career, if I can have just the right relationship, if I can have just the right amount of money or just the right number of things or a specific thing, if I can have freedom, if, if, I, can, if I can have the things I want, I know me best and I know what's going to make me happy. And so I spend my life just running after all of these things. People commonly at the end of their lives, if you ask them if they have regrets, they look back on their life and they realize that lots of the things they were chasing for happiness have left them wanting. And they will say things like, I wish I had spent more time here. I wish I had done this. I wish I had had uh, more ambition. I wish I had taken more risks. Because now I realize time is gone. It's one life to live. And, and so they get to the end and they're looking back and they're judging it. Did I thrive? Did I flourish? What are my regrets? We, so if we're headed this way, we tend to be chasing it. If we're looking back, we tend to focus regrets on it. And I think part of the struggle, though, is as we go through life, there's just frankly so much we can't control. You could chase the right career, and you can't control what the CEO does, and suddenly the company tanks it, and you get laid off. You can chase just the right relationship, do everything that's in your power, and the other person fail in their commitments and responsibilities. You can't control it. You can earn all this money, the economy take a downturn, inflation. There's just so many things that we can't control. And none of that chasing even deals with more significant obstacles like relational conflicts that we experience or the distance we have from God himself. Inner sin issues, our own bents and weaknesses, our struggles with anger, feeling insecure, unaccepted. Knowing who you are in Christ isn't handled by just the right job, just the right things, just the right place. And entering to all that is the Sermon on the Mount. Not to put too much pressure on the Sermon on the Mount, but it deals with all those things I just listed. It answers the question, how can you live a flourishing life? 
It deals with how do you wrestle through conflicts as you're on this journey of a flourishing life and how do you deal with inner sin issues and how do you deal with your insecurities and fears? How do you deal with your distance from God? How do you deal with people that come into your life that are bullies that you have to deal with? How do you deal with people that are enemies? How do you deal with friends and loved ones? How do you deal with God at the very end when you stand before him and face judgment? And so it is astounding that some 2,000 years later, whether you were a first century Jew sitting at the base of a mountain, a large hill, or on the plains and hearing Jesus speak these words, or whether you're sitting now here 2,000 years later, 2,000 years later in this little bedroom community for Columbia that you never tell somebody you're from Irma if they're from outside the state because nobody even knows what it is. And when you talk to any company, they always call it Irma, and you're like, Irma, just, it's okay. But it applies to us. It speaks to us. In powerful ways. And so the whole point of this sermon this morning is to introduce you because there is just a beautiful context and complexity to it. If you're one of those people that likes to take notes, you're welcome because you're going to love it this morning. But I want you hungry. I want you hungry for the truth and the power and the person of Christ as you embrace him and his message this morning. Because embracing the true message of Christ, the Sermon on the Mount, is the pathway to thrive in this life. And so let's begin like any good study of Scripture should begin. Let's start with context. You've got to understand what is going on, what is happening here. Uh, And so we can look at this almost like in a timeline. Uh, So we want to think contextually Old Testament, then we'll get to Jesus' day and we'll move forward from there. So first of all, one of the ways to think about the Sermon on the Mount is to see it as Jesus as almost another Moses. There are some stunning similarities, and I'm not going to read extensively through the Sermon on the Mount this morning. I will reference a number of passages and sections. We'll read some. Uh, I will say this. If you're in life group, and and I encourage everyone to be part of a life group, we welcome you to join our life groups. Um, They meet throughout the week, one today, one Wednesday, one Thursday evening. One of the things Life Group's going to do this week is actually take turns and read through the entire Sermon on the Mount. That will take about 20 minutes. But I want you to get the wealth of it. And yes, frankly, I was not willing to give up 20 minutes of my sermon this morning to read all the way through. I think it would have been worthwhile, but, but I made a different decision this morning. But I do want you to see at least the first verses. To, and, and if you're familiar with the Bible, and if you're not, that's fine. But if you're familiar, it will remind you of Moses. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to them, and he opened his mouth and taught them. So Jesus has been traveling. He's got multitudes, thousands of people following him. Um, We know that these crowds would swell upwards of 10,000, 15,000 people at times. And so there's massive numbers of crowds following him. He hasn't done things yet to offend them and drive them away. They've come from Syria, from Decapolis, that's the region of the Ten Cities. They've come from the entire area of Galilee, lots of people there. And you have Jesus on a mountain speaking. And he's giving truth, and he will reference the law and the prophets. This feels like Moses on Mount Sinai giving the law. In one sense, Jesus is another Moses here. Now, what's interesting about that is that will play later into the sermon, uh, our sermon this morning, about why people struggle with the Sermon on the Mount. Because when you think of Jesus almost like another Moses or law from the mountain, when we think, what is the purpose of the law? Why did God give the law? Uh, And we could summarize it all the way down into the Ten Commandments, but um, there's lots more law than just the Ten Commandments. And, and the law is hard, and the law is difficult, 
and, and the law, frankly, feels impossible. And so I think one catechism question, we're actually going to hit this catechism question, I think it's week 15, since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? And that's the truth. No one but Jesus has ever lived perfectly, sinlessly. No one but Jesus ever kept the law. So why give a law that no one is possibly ever going to fulfill? And the answer in our catechism we'll even give in a few weeks is this, that we may know the holy nature and will of God, the sinful nature and disobedience of our hearts, and thus our need of a Savior. The law also teaches and exhorts us to live a life worthy of our Savior. Now, I think the catechism is helpful because if I was going to reference text this morning to explain to us the purpose of the law, I literally would have to walk through multiple passages in Romans 6 through 8 and in Galatians 2 through 4 and in Hebrews. It would take extensive amounts of time. But this summary statement, that's what they're trying to glean from here, is helpful. It helps us to know how holy God is. So it starts to communicate to us our distance from God. It helps us to understand that the law is far more than just the things that we do, but it's who we are, the disobedience of our hearts. The law, the Old Testament law, does deal with motives. The, the Old Testament law is a reflection of the character of God, as it even cares for widows, orphans, and the impoverished. It teaches, exhorts us to live a life worthy of our Savior, a life that honors and pleases God. Now, here's what's hard about that, though. Is that what the Sermon on the Mount is doing? Is the Sermon on the Mount Jesus' commentary on the law? That's one perspective. If it is, if it is, then that would mean Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are impossible to live, and they show you how far you are from God. Now, when you do your one-year Bible reading, how excited are you in Leviticus? It's a tough book. It's a good book. Don't skip it. But if you approach Matthew 5, 6, and 7 as simply Jesus' commentary on the law, and his unpacking of something that's already impossible for you to live, how prone do you think you will be to come back to this text to ask questions of how does this speak to my daily life? You'll be reluctant, won't you? When I memorized Matthew 5, 6, and 7 as a teenager, that's what I thought it was. I walked through Matthew 5, 6, and 7 not encouraged, but feeling completely and utterly overwhelmed to the point, frankly, of thinking, what's the point? I mean, I was the kid, if you smacked me on one cheek, I was honestly the kid, if I thought you were going to smack me on one cheek, you got hit first. The concepts here of not lusting, the concepts here of loving an enemy, like they just were mind-blowing to me, and I, all I could see was my failures. I couldn't see grace or flourishing. But in one sense, this is like another Moses moment, and you can actually see it in these opening verses. But notice what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17 through 18. If you, and you just want to keep your Bible open there with you. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. That's a stunning moment. We're going to have to wrestle with that in a few weeks. What does that really mean then for you and I? 
And so I want us to understand at the start, one of the contextual ways to think about this moment is like another better Moses. Moses is a shadow of a type of Christ. This is a moment that all the Jews would have figured out. And so it's important for us to understand contextually, and it gives us questions that we'll have to ask and answer as we move forward. What is the relationship of this to the law? What is the relationship of Christ to the law? And how should we think about it and approach it as a result of that? But it's not just contextually Old Testament linking that way. It is also a new message for these folks. Now, the first four chapters of Matthew help us this way quite a bit. Uh, There has been a buildup until this moment in Matthew's gospel. He's been introducing Jesus to us. He, he tells us, and, and you can actually track through Matthew pretty, pretty amazingly. It's, it's clear Matthew had this like Old Testament outline in his brain because he starts with, here's the genesis of Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus. Here's the genesis of his ministry. Um, he fast forwards, hyper fast forwards to like Jesus is another Jewish nation that goes into Egypt in exile. He comes out of Egypt. Jesus goes into the wilderness. He comes out of the wilderness. Now we have this mountain teaching moment. It's almost like the, the history of Israel in brief. And it's been building to this truth. It says that uh, John is saying, repent for the kingdom is near. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom is hand. And then he's been preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Now let me give you this whole sermon. It's like he's saying. But for there to be a kingdom, and this is what's being introduced in the gospel of Matthew, um, Christ as the king, for there to be a kingdom, there, you got to have a king, right? But the king has to have power, he has to be able to do something. Somebody claiming to be the king but has no power um, might as well be standing outside of the local 7-Eleven screaming, follow me. You have no authority. Uh, little children realize this. I mean, uh, I don't know, are they two or three when the first time you'll, see that you'll hear them say things like, you're not the boss of me? Uh, you're not my mom or your daddy? Um, we had one of our children once tell a nursery worker, you're not my, you're not my mom or your daddy? Um, my children have a father who once told people multiple times, you're not my father, you're not my mom or your daddy. I don't have to listen, you're not the boss of me. It's like, do they have power? Do they have authority? You can claim authority all you want, but unless you have power to back it up, it's, it's pointless. Well, if you go back to Matthew 4, Matthew has been saying, here's Jesus as king, but now look and see his power, verse 23, he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease, every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. They brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan, there is a power here. For you to have a kingdom, there has to be a king and he has to have power. Now what's interesting is his power is not just demonstrated in what he does. If you just keep your finger there and just fast forward all the way to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, after these three chapters of preaching, look at what the Matthew commentates about it in Matthew 7, 28. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. It's not just his healing that had a a display of power. It's his preaching that has a display of power. So if you think kingdom, you've got to have a king. The king has got to have power. You have to have people that follow. 
Um, even a king with power, even if that guy standing outside 7-Eleven is saying I'm an authority and he has power to do things, but nobody's following them. A leader without, a, lead, without followers is not a leader. They're a loner. You've got to have people that follow along with you. And then you have a king who has power, you have people. Ultimately, you need land. You, you need a location of some kind for there to be a kingdom. Where does this kingdom's borders? And how are we to understand that? And so what Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are doing is they are telling us the message of this new king and how that message, the word and the works of Jesus, are assembling a people. It describes the people who follow this king. Uh, We'll study this more in depth next week, but the Beatitudes are not talking about earning the kingdom. They're describing people who already are members of the kingdom. So when he says in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he's not telling you become poor in spirit so you can get the kingdom of heaven. He is recognizing those of us who have repented and believed, that in and of itself is having been poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those the, the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This new message of Jesus This new king becomes the dominant teaching of Jesus. You might be sitting here wondering, how in the world did Matthew record this? Now, when the Bible is given, it is given by inspiration of God, and uh, it uses a a fascinating image to help us understand, well, how did that happen? Uh, Because the Bible says that the Holy Spirit moved, as men were moved by the Holy Spirit, they, they wrote. And the word move that it uses there is the image of wind, uh, entering a sail of a, of a boat and it pushing the boat along. So as the sail is moved by the wind, it goes forward. And it's that kind of image when it talks about men of God are as they were moved by the spirit they wrote. And they write out of their personality. They write out of their vocabulary. That's why Paul reading Paul reads very different from, from Peter and reading Matthew reads very different from Luke and um, and, and so how do we understand it? So how in the world did Matthew, after the death of Christ, how was he able to sit there and, and write 5, 6, and 7? Can we have a confidence? Yes, we can. Matthew is giving us in toto or in totality the message that Jesus preached all the time. And sometimes he would have preached all of it. Sometimes he would have preached portions of it. But Matthew would have heard these statements dozens and hundreds of times. Over and over and over again. I've been married 20 years. I start to tell a joke now, and my wife already knows at the start, should I groan or laugh? She heard them all before. I got, I'm always trying to come up with new material. Um, and, and so you've heard it. They live every day with Jesus hearing it. Matthew didn't have a phone to record it. It's recorded as it's etched on his heart and his mind as it is repeated time after time after time. Luke records portions of it. 
but the whole life of Christ, even in Mark and John, reflect the truths of it. The parables that he tells later and the stories and his interactions back it up all the way through. And so this is the message of the king. Matthew wants us to understand these verses in, Mark, in Matthew 4, he says he's preaching and teaching. Your question would be, what's he preaching and teaching? It's this. This is the dominant message. Now, if we go Old Testament, we go to Jesus' day, what happens for the last 2,000 years then? It's a directive towards having a new life. One of the stunning moments, and I think of the Sermon on the Mount, will be is how applicable it is to these first century Jews and how easily applicable it is to you and I. That the truths of this message, they speak across every culture, every generation, every ethnicity, every, every region of the planet of how you can live a flourishing life. When God put Adam and Eve in the garden, it was intended that they be fruitful and multiply. They flourish and they fill the earth. Sin enters the world, but God's heart and desire for people to flourish in the earth never changed. But the question is, how do we flourish in a sin-fallen world? If somebody would ask you, how do I live in this world? Or what is Christianity's answer for the dark things of this world? And how should I function in this world? How can I have happiness? How can I have joy? How can I experience the fullness that God would want for me? The first place in the Bible you should turn to is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was concerned with our daily lives. We saw that last week in Matthew 4 when he's healing all kinds of diseases. He's not willing to just preach a message and leave them uh, languishing in their blindness and their lameness and their deafness and their demon possession, but he's concerned with the impact of daily life in them. The Sermon on the Mount is filled with references to daily life. As we study through it, time after time after time, we will see how Jesus is referencing their life as he's speaking to them and be able to apply it to our own. Let me just show you some of them. In Matthew 5.14, he makes the statement, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. That, every Jew there immediately would have thought of Jerusalem. Jerusalem sat upon a hill. Uh, multiple times a year they were supposed to travel there. They were supposed to journey to Jerusalem for different festivals and feasts. And, and so the city would swell and everybody would camp in the region around it. But literally, it sits up on a hill and it would be filled with lights. And the temple complex was on the highest part of the city. They had these massive candelabras and, and pillars. And so they, when Jesus says that you, it's literally saying you are the walking embodiment of the presence of God. And they would have been thinking, I'm like Jerusalem walking around? Yes. And they all would have immediately grabbed that image and understood it. He describes the, the whole righteousness issues with scribes and Pharisees. Verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I love that moment because <clears throat> for a couple of reasons. One, there would have been scribes and Pharisees in the crowd. And they dressed in distinctive ways. So can you imagine that moment, right? Um, unless your righteousness screams the skies of fear. I don't know. Like some of the adults would have been like laser focused on Jesus. Don't look away. Don't look away. Don't look away. But like kids, teenagers, they'd have been like, oh, you just got called out. It's a hilarious moment. It's an ironic moment. It's a Jesus is not afraid to poke people in the eye kind of moment. 
And they would have understood because you have these guys that followed the law and then they added to the law and they've got all these rules and all these extra regulations. And so that would have been stunning to them because it's Jesus saying, I'm not just saying that your righteousness needs to fulfill all the Mosaic law, which already is impossible, but it needs to go beyond these guys who seem to have added to the law. That leaves you with a hard question, then how can I ever be righteous? How can I ever flourish if that's what's required. But it gives them a living illustration. Verses 31 through 32, they live in a culture not dissimilar from ours when it came to marriage and the ease and the quickness of divorce, particularly for men, from women. And so he wants to link this in to sexual sin because what they weren't dealing with is at the core of marriage, the unity, the one flesh covenantal relationship that ought not to be broken. And so he, he cites it and they would have understood this immediately. It's living in the world. The Roman soldiers, verses 41 through 43, when he starts talking about enemies and people that would afflict them, he talks about turning the other cheek, and he gives this what seemed to us strange example. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Like, what? The Roman soldiers had the authority to grab any Jew at any time and demand that they carry their pack for a mile. What an interruption to their day. Several weeks ago, I was driving uh, past the high school, and I saw this young lady broken down by the side of the road, and um, I, I was like, well, let me see if I can help her, and she had a flat tire. I thought, no big deal. I don't know. I've changed hundreds of tires in my life. No big deal. So I stopped to try to help her. These were the most stripped lug nuts I've ever seen in my life. I was like, and I was immediately like, what have I got myself into? I ran home, got other tools, came back. Um, I mean, it ended up with a hammer and a socket beating it on these stripped lug nuts to get this thing off. So we finally got, him, got it off and um, put, a, put her spare on, <clears throat> her donut. And, and I said, look, you need to drive from here to the tire shop. Do not, do not, do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Go to the tire shop because it, like, you, you'll be safe, but you don't need to be on the highway. She's like, okay, okay, she's in a hurry. And I turn around to put my tools in my car, and she's gone by the time I'm like, oh. And so I get in my van to call my wife, and my phone is missing. Like, this is a problem. And I vividly remember at that moment that I left my phone on the hood of her car. When I was working on the car, just taking it out of my pocket, sat there, was working. She had driven off with my phone on her car. And I'm one of those guys, I'm cheap. I'm not paying Verizon $17 a month for insurance. I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> Steve's about to go old school and be with a flip phone. Um, so I use my iPad, I find where the phone's at, I, I'm trying to call her, the number, and finally she answers, and, and, and she's, she had seen it, <laughs> that's what she told me, while I was driving and texting, <laughs> I saw your phone fly off the hood of my car. So she said, I, I went and got it, and I said, well, I will meet you wherever you're at, stay where you're at, I'll come to you, and she was very annoyed with me at how inconvenient she was going to be at having to wait for me to come get my phone from her. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, do you know how much money I just saved this woman by changing her tire? Do you know how disruptive this was to my day? And all of a sudden, you know what came into my mind? That verse. And I just felt rebuked. Thankfully, she waited. I got my phone book, phone back. I know that's really what you were so desperate to know. But it speaks directly into their day like it speaks into our day. 
It transcends time. The concept that someone would want to take advantage of your goodness and your graciousness and demand from you, and Jesus is talking about a willingness to give them even more than what they're demanding. False teachers, he gets to the end in chapter 7 and famously talks about fruit and the lack of fruit and what is good fruit and what is bad fruit because we are surrounded at times by people who claim one thing and behave another. And we, we have this dissonance in our minds. How do I handle them saying X but doing Y? What do I do with this? And Jesus speaks into their day an agrarian culture with imagery that stands out to them, but it transcends time to even us city folks. We get it. You don't, you don't get oranges off an apple tree. You don't get bad fruit off a good tree. And so look at what they're doing. That will inform you of what they're saying and how they're behaving. The context of the Sermon on the Mount moves from Old Testament to the establishing of this kingdom, and then it comes to this new life for us. And so that's the context. But what is the structure of the sermon? Um, Not every text of scripture requires this level of of intensity, but the Sermon on the Mount does, because the structure of the Sermon on the Mount is so important to understanding it. And it's roughly broken into three portions. And they are the kingdom citizens who are described and through the Beatitudes, the blessings, um, there in the opening. And it runs down through verse 16, to commanding us who we should be and what we should be. Uh, in verse 16, the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's kind of the conclusion of the introduction of these are the people who follow me and I want your light to shine out. And the natural question would be, what will that look like? What does it look like if I'm a follower of the king, a citizen of his kingdom, but I'm living in this very dark world, dark, let your light shine. What does it look like when the light of Christ through me is piercing the darkness? When the embodiment of the city on a hill, the embodiment of Jerusalem is now walking around all over the place. What will that look like? And the main portion of the sermon from 5.17 through 7.12 unpacks that. And you can actually think of it this way. Matthew 5.7 through 7.12 answers that question. What does it look like for the light of Christ to shine out of believers? You could answer it very simply this way. Total summary statement of that main portion. When you love God and you love others. It's stunning to behold because that is not the natural bent or disposition of any human on this planet. The only way we can walk around truly loving God and genuinely loving others is because of his power in us coming out of us. And he wants us to be able to understand this. He even introduces it by describing relationships with others. And so uh, it's interesting if you even break it down this way and you think of the Beatitudes in this introduction. He's really describing, yes, how we respond to others, but it always comes back to our relationship with God. Your reward in heaven and you inherit the earth and you're the sons of God. It's relationship with God. Then when he gets to verse uh, 13, he starts to flip it and then this is how it looks like to others. And this just becomes the dominant theme of Christ. Love God, love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. But he knows we need more than that. He knows that we, frankly, we're terrible at figuring that out on on our own. 
Loving other people takes nuance and it's complex. I mean, we've got books out there observationally. Um, I, I agree with the observation of it. It's, it's not scriptural, but we have books like the five love languages, right? So some people are like words of affirmation and other people are acts of service and other people are gifts and physical affection. And, and so we have these five love languages. And, and so the, the hard thing is when I receive love one way and you receive it another way, sometimes you don't feel love, but I, I think I'm loving you well. And, and it's this weird kind of a thing. It takes nuance and complexity. Um, you get into a relationship with someone and you realize how selfish you are. Uh, you do workplace living with people and you realize how selfish you are, how annoyed, how easily annoyed you we get with other people. And so the whole main part is unpacking this. But I want you to see a deeper dive in this main part because we'll spend a lot of time there, and it's really important for you to understand how he will go after it. He begins with an introduction in 5:17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's kind of his intro. The next section will be loving our neighbor and then loving God. And I have the verses there to show you where, roughly where those will be. And so if you like to write in your Bible, and some people do, some people don't, you like to take notes otherwise, that's helpful for you to break the sermon down mentally. This whole section is about loving my neighbor. This whole section is going to be about loving God. You can actually take a deeper dive, and each, each one of these actually contain more detail. In loving our neighbor, he goes item by item. I don't think there's a particular... Um, importance necessarily to which ones he does first and which one he does last. I don't, I don't think you can make an emphasis, oh, he starts with anger because that's what all of us think and ends with the poor. Because I, I, I think Jesus is going through them. I, there's a genius and a divinity to what he's doing, but, but he just goes through them. By going through them, though, I will say he is dealing with all the main core issues that we all struggle with. And even more importantly, He's dealing with those issues that would affect our human flourishing. It's hard to be happy and flourishing while you're angry. It's hard to be happy and flourishing when there's sexual brokenness from you or experienced by you. When there's lying, when you're wrestling with doing revenge because you're just going about your day trying to do your thing and then someone does something evil to you, puts demands upon you. There are enemies that come into our lives. We can't control. We don't know why they are the way they are. Um, there are people that come after us when we've done nothing to them. How do I relate to them? This would affect my ability to live a flourishing life. Being surrounded by the needy and the hurting of this world. How do I deal with this? And so each one of these will unpack what does it look like to be a walking Jerusalem on this planet, shining the light. What does it look like to love your neighbor? And each of these, when... He'll then wrap that up by addressing then loving God with the Lord's Prayer. How do we go to God? How do we understand who he is? How do we relate to him? 
fasting, this, this image that as we relate to God, he is more important than my personal physical drives even. I'm going to live with an eternal focus, not a temporal focus. I think, that's, I think that's so interesting that one of the ways we flourish here is by not making life all about here, but about there. And how do we deal with the worry and the anxieties of our lives, of our life? And the answer is God. Now, when you get through these, Jesus wants to come back because he understands humanity like nobody else since he made us. And he knows this about us. He knows that in 521 through 64, this concept of loving our neighbor, he knows that there's something we would be prone to do when we're flourishing that way. And he knows what we would be prone to do is to become very judgy of other people and very arrogant. Look at how well I'm doing it, speaking the truth to every man. Look at how well I'm doing it, not at turning the other cheek. I have not done to you what I could have done to you. I don't know why. It's, it's probably wrong that I think in a British accent every time. I think haughtiness. I can't, that's so American, right? Um, look at how I am, right? Like it's, I have a terrible accent. But, um, but look at how much I've achieved. And so Jesus is going to come back to that, to give a conclusion statement. That's not how we should approach our Christianity. We should not approach our Christianity with the mindset of how much better we are than you. And what would our response to God be? That we're supposed to pray things like the Lord's Prayer, saying, give me this day my daily bread. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm willing to give up food for this. I'm going to live for there, not for here. I'm not going to try to assemble more of all my happiness here because I'm working for treasures in heaven. And I'm not going to be consumed with anxiety and worry like I can fix it. He knew how we would respond to God. And that would be this question, is God really for my best? And so the next thing he will do is he'll give conclusions to both of those. It's a beautiful structure. Because he so knows and understands who we are. I, one of the things I love about God's word is as I read it and study it, how personal it feels with how well God knows me and my struggles and who I am and truth I need and grace and love and kindness, the instruction that my heart craves. And so all of that, though, will lead to this kind of capstone moment that many, many people run to in the Sermon on the Mount, this famous golden rule. And he concludes this whole section, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. And listen to how he finishes, for this is the law and the prophets. And so the law given by Jesus has these incredible bookends, this is why we could easily say this. What is the law of Christ? Love God, love your neighbor. In all the ways, and all the things that that means. And so even small children, kindergartners, pre-K, are taught that truth. Secular people love that truth. We'll come to that in just a moment here. And so that's the middle section. Uh, that's how it's structured. That's how it will function. Um, and, and I hope, I'll, I'll try to remind us of this as we go through because that will help us 
uh, as we move forward. And then there's the conclusion, and, and this is a sermon. You might remember from last week, we asked the question, what's the difference between teaching and preaching? Because um, there's tremendous overlap. But the primary difference for preaching is it's a call to a response. It demands a response from you. Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount with giving us two options all along the way. And it runs from verse 13 through 27. He gives it in different illustrative ways. He talks about the tree and its fruit. So it's either you're going to bear good fruit or you're going to bear bad fruit. He talks about either you're going to take a narrow way or a wide way. And he talks about either you're going to build your house on the rock or your house on the sand. These three defining illustrations are a call for each of us to consider, what am I building my life on? What am I structuring life about? And so a sermon that's all about human flourishing the blessedness of following this king as a kingdom citizen is a call to a responsible way of living in a way that follows his path. Embracing the true message of Christ is the pathway to thrive in this life. Now, so that's the context, that's the structure. One last thing will be done this morning. How do we interpret the text? Now, I have already been giving you, lots, whether you realize it or not, lots of ways of which I interpret the text. And I've referenced a misunderstanding of interpreting the text that I had when I was a teenager. But if you, and there's enough of us that have been around church a lot, that you have, I guarantee you, unwittingly gathered a system of how you think about the Sermon on the Mount. And so I want you to understand how you should approach the Sermon on the Mount. My pastoral, understood, recommended way, there is some latitude here. This is not Steve's way is the only way, but I want to help us to understand there is a wrong way and there is a right way. First of all, you could approach this as just good philosophy. And that makes the Sermon on the Mount very acceptable in our culture. That it's just a good kind of way to live. People as divergent as Gandhi who saw this as just kind of the peak of ethical moral teaching by his own statements. But he approached it not as coming from a king placing demands on his kingdom citizens. He approached it as just an incredible philosophy teacher teaching us how to live the best life now. Tolstoy, who claimed to become a believer at the end of his life, referenced and um, loved the Sermon on the Mount. Martin Luther King Jr. referenced it its truths substantially and embraced lots of its ideals in his pacifistic approach to dealing with racial injustice and oppression. Uh, bands as divergent. I mean, they run the gamut. From Merle Haggard and Johnny Cash, who sung about uh, portions of the Sermon on the Mount, to U2 and their Joshua Tree Project, to the modern rock band Everlast, to Bob Marley's first release single. It was about a portion of the Sermon on the Mount. People love it and embrace it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Lutheran, German Lutheran minister, comes to the United States, and while he was in the United States, he lived primarily in Harlem and went to a black church in Harlem. And while he was in that church, he was stunned by the community that he experienced. He had never experienced anything like that. Uh, the German Lutheran church was very, <laughs> shocking, stoic, reserved, 
you know, separate from one another. We all come together. We all hear the homily. We're all good, and we leave, right? Um, you know, it, it's very cultural, very German, but let's just be honest, it's very white Protestant as well, right? Like, um, it's just weird. So he gets it. So imagine dropping that in Harlem, um, in in the forties, late thirties, uh, early forties, and and Bonhoeffer is just astounded by this community of people who love one another and care for one another and who are living out the ideals of the Sermon on the Mount. And Bonhoeffer's in Harlem and he's studying the Sermon on the Mount and he's living in this community and Bonhoeffer becomes convinced this is how Christians should live. And he's convinced that's not how the primary German Lutheran church is living. Hitler has already come to power, is beginning his oppressive ideals. Bonhoeffer knows the risk to himself, but he believes that he is to be a city a light in a dark land, he packs up his things, gets on a plane, and flies back to Nazi Germany to live this out. And it's ultimately what leads to his, to his execution. It has been transformative. Now, so not all of these guys and these folks that I have listed up here embraced it as the truth of a king the way Bonhoeffer did. But they all saw it, and it is acceptable even in our modern culture to treat the Sermon on the Mount like good philosophy. If you were, you could, you could teach this literally anywhere. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's not going to make anybody mad. I was reading an article this week by an atheistic anarchist who hates the Sermon on the Mount. And he said... There is, however, nonetheless, a good takeaway. We should treat others as we would want to be treated. And I'm like, this is unbelievable. This guy that gets to breathe today because God loves him, and yet he hates God, even he has to admit the validity of that statement. We understand it's coming from much more power. I want to encourage you, do not approach the Sermon on the Mount as just good philosophy. It is the best philosophy. But do not approach it as just good philosophy. If you approach this text as just good philosophy, you will walk out as one who has looked in the mirror, seen what you need, and ignored it and go the other way. I am convinced trying to live the Sermon on the Mount will make your life better. But it is not why Jesus gave it. He primarily gave it so that people would understand what he looks like on this earth. And it's supposed to look like a bunch of little Jesuses running around. Speaking and living with power that is not their own. Shining lights into an ever-increasingly dark world, it feels like. And calling people to truth. And so, if we don't treat it as good philosophy, we must treat it as glorious truth. To embrace the message of Christ is to embrace Christ. And so over the years and over the centuries, there have been a number of different ways, even in Christianity, for how the Sermon on the Mount is approached. I'm going to give you a quick church history lesson here because I think it will help you to discern maybe some truth from error as we move forward. Early church fathers, the patristics we call them, so these are, these are guys as far back as Chrysostom and uh, Augustine, right? So you got early church fathers. They, they pretty much approached the Sermon on the Mount universally, and their 
approach the Sermon on the Mount stayed true until you get to Luther in the 1500s. So for the first 1500 years, they approached the Sermon on the Mount one way, and they approached the Sermon on the Mount as a guideline for daily living. Great, but there was a problem. Remember Constantine and the whole we're going to make nations of Christians? Everybody gets baptized. We are Christian. How many times have you heard the United States is a Christian nation? We live in the Bible Belt South. Everybody on my court is a Christian. Like th this, this is the way people think. The problem with that is they recognize, man, we're a Christian nation, a Christian people. They've been baptized and part of the church. But boy, they sure aren't living this out. And so they thought of it as the guidebook for daily life, but they thought of it this way. There are some Christians who don't really live this, but the really spiritual ones do. And that developed in those first 1,500 years so that normal Christians like us, these are kind of optional. And I don't really have to follow it and still say I'm following Jesus. And unfortunately, there are people even now who that's how they approach the Sermon on the Mount. These are optional truths, not real demands. And really spiritual people do this, but not me. And that's okay. You get to Luther then, 1500s. Luther comes to this. Luther's the guy, you remember, that suddenly he is blown away by the law, and he is a Catholic priest, and he suddenly realizes, I can't live up to the law. I'll never be good enough for God. And his heart becomes overwhelmed with grace and his need of grace. And so suddenly salvation becomes through all the solas, right? Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, glory of God alone, right? Uh, based only on scripture, scripture alone. So I think I just listed all, I think I got all five. If I didn't, it's, I'm not leaving that on purpose. Like, that's what he points. So then Luther comes to the Sermon on the Mount, though, and he saw the Moses imagery. And so Luther believed this about the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' commentary and unpacking of the law that's just as impossible. So the primary purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to show how far you and I are from God. So once again, while these guidelines are really good, we're just going to walk into it kind of all-knowing we can't do it. It's impossible to approach it that way and not minimize its power. And that has become a dominant way of approaching the Sermon on the Mount. Unwittingly, as a teenager, when I memorized it, that was the way I walked away from it. Not with a joy, but a dread. And so if I came to the passage on dealing with my enemies... I didn't receive it as Jesus is giving me not an unlivable demand, but as a Holy Spirit-empowered way to flourish in the face of my enemies. Oh. That's a completely different approach. And so unfortunately, Luther approached it that way. The Anabaptists kind of took those two views and slammed them together. And they believe that this is primarily a statement for how a nation should live. And so this, is, this becomes almost political. And so a nation should be genuine believers, but then this dominates the way a nation. And so they then embrace things like pacifism. 
And so when it says turn the other cheek, that's what we should always do is turn the other cheek. And so you can throw Romans out when it talks about the nation state wielding the sword not in vain and punishing people. They're like, no, we should never do that. And so we even see descendants of that through uh, Quakers and Amish and, frankly, other Christians even to this day, that then it's always pacifism, always pacifistic, don't take oaths. This is the way we should all function. Self-defense is wrong. And, and so there's this ideal, and so there are some. I have met people, modern-day people, that that's the way they approach the Sermon on the Mount. There are others that approach it like a modern social gospel, that this is the gospel itself, caring for the poor, being a peacemaker, um, feeding people, clothing people, um, not taking revenge and treating your enemies rightly. This is the gospel. And so they leave behind that you're a sinner and you need to repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus. And it becomes acts that you're doing is what demonstrates and what makes you a Christian. And so the Sermon on the Mount is not the living out of the power of Christ in demonstrable ways. The Sermon on the Mount for these folks becomes the way to receive the power of God. And they make it the social gospel. I'll give you one last one. Um, modern classic dispensationalism. Classic dispensationalism viewed the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus is offering the kingdom to the Jews. They reject it. And so none of this applies to us. Literally, none of it. It's an ideal, but we live in such a broken world, you can't live this way. You cannot live this way, and God doesn't expect you to. And so the result of it is the same as a Lutheran approach, and I don't mean that like modern Lutheranism, but a Martin Luther approach, where it's an unlivable law, hmm, but the end result's the same. It's unlivable. Um, Lutheran's view would leave you feeling guilty in need of grace. Modern classic dispensational view would leave you feeling guiltless and free. And so you don't have to do this to the millennial kingdom. That's the way they would approach it. Now what's interesting is they all have some elements of truth, as is the case so often. Because the reality is, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is not the totality of everything Jesus ever taught. But it is the core and the foundation for how we flourish. So, for example, Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek, but there are nuances to that, aren't there? There are. If you don't know there are, there are. Because later when he sends his disciples out, he talks about how they're going to be mistreated and abused, and how people are going to afflict them, and they're going to harm them. And they say, Jesus, we have two swords. And he goes, that's enough. That's a fascinating interaction because you don't use swords to hunt. They were for self-defense. And so Jesus, you don't need 12 of them, even though there's 12 of you. And Jesus doesn't say, get rid of them. There is a nuance to the way we do life, loving our neighbor and God like Christ. Jesus says, uh, to turn the other cheek, and yet he winds up three cords and whips people out of a temple, kicking over their tables and disrupting their businesses. He says, don't cast your pearls before swine. He talks about not harming your enemies in a vengeful way, but in Romans he points out that the, that the government should wield the sword in vain and injustice should be dealt with. There are nuances. 
within the Sermon on the Mount. He tells us to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the sons of God. Paul helps us understand later, live it as much as lies within you. Dwell at peace with all men. But there's things beyond your control. There are nuances to this. And so when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we need to understand this is not only what Jesus has said. This is the dominant foundational way we should understand and normally do life. But if you can't approach it with a nuanced, complex view, you will tend to fall into these erroneous camps of throwing it all out or treating it as not real demands. The impossibility of living it is actually where some of the grace and glory is. You read the Sermon on the Mount, and sometimes you will read it and you will say, Oh, I need King Jesus. Whew. And other times you'll read it and say, I am so thankful I have King Jesus. Because the Sermon on the Mount is also filled with grace and glory and mercy. And so I would actually end the introduction by asking you this. Do you feel broken in this world? One of the most famous parts of the Sermon on the Mount is if you go to Matthew 5, verse 48, he says this. You, therefore, must be what? Perfect. Do you know... He did not choose the word there that means holy. He used the word there that means whole. Be whole as your heavenly father is whole. In Matthew 5 at the start, he says, blessed. These are words that mean flourish. Flourish. You will flourish. You will thrive. You and I will thrive in our wholehearted pursuit of Christ as we know and follow the Sermon on the Mount. Do you feel broken? You need the Sermon on the Mount. Do you struggle with knowing how do I deal with different situations and how do I live in this broken world? You need the Sermon on the Mount. Do you struggle with does my life have meaning and can it have meaning? You need the Sermon on the Mount. Do you wonder what it will be like when you face God one day? You need the Sermon on the Mount. This is, what would Jesus, uh, you see the bracelets, what would Jesus do? You need the Sermon on the Mount. This is the path of strength in weakness, comfort in sorrow, confidence in anxiety, generosity in the face of poverty, worship in the midst of sorrow, and love in the face of hate. Will you flourish? Will you move forward in this life from wherever you're at right now in the face of blasting wind against you? How will you press forward? You need the Sermon on the Mount because what you really need, what I need, is the king and his message. If you would flourish, if you would know and follow Jesus, then you must follow his sermon, embracing the true message of Christ. That is the pathway to thrive in this life. And I hope that makes you hungry.